Well, if you haven't already done so, you can turn back over to Isaiah chapter 40. And if you missed last week, um, you might want to get the recording or, or jump online. We'll, I'll review some things today. But this is one of those red-letter chapters in your Bible that uh, you don't want to miss. Uh, if you've never come across it before, or even if you have, uh, it's, such, it's so worth um, looking at in some detail. Uh, The title of the the message today is The Incomparable God, and uh, we'll pick up kind of where we left off last time. Uh, Many of you have come across this quote um, that I stumbled on as a brand new Christian, and I want to read it to you. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question, that means the most serious, right? The, the most serious question, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at every, any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him, or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Knowledge of the Holy by Tozer. Knowledge of the Holy. Yeah, no, I was, I was going to say it. I was going to say it. I left you hanging there. Yeah, and uh, this is a great little book. Uh, Tozer was a pastor and Bible teacher of last century, um, and uh, he was uh, probably the most well-known pastor in the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination, if you're familiar with CMA. And um, this is a great little book just on the attributes of God, and um, so that may be a good devotional to keep by your, your bedside there when you're reading your Bible and praying. Um, but, but let me ask you a question in light of that. 
Um, how is your view of God today? If Tozer's right, and I think he is, uh, that the most important thing about us is what we think of God. And, and not on a Sunday school exam, you know, when David Gibson was here and did the Sunday school exam and all of you did great, I mean, that's, but that, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is in a moment by moment, uh, reality, as you think about God throughout your day, how are you doing? Now be honest. Do you not think about God as often as you should? Are you bored with God? You know, we we sit in the worship service and we think, where am I going for lunch after this? What am I going to do this afternoon? Right? We struggle with that, right? I struggle with that, just like you do. Are you bored with God? When you open your Bible in your quiet time, uh, is it uncompelling? Is it ordinary? Right? I've read this before. Right? Um, Tozer's challenge and the text before us intersect in this way. Most of us need a God adjustment. Because if we're honest, is is great and powerful and wise and holy and righteous and overwhelming as he is, that even even the most eloquent poets, inspired by God's very spirit, run out of vocabulary to try to describe who he is. And here's the thing to see. If you're struggling in your walk with God or it isn't quite as growing as, as well as you'd like or even if you feel like you're floundering, you understand that's usually not a process problem. It's a perception of God problem. Right? If, if we went to a TCU football game, let's just pick TCU because we've got the Harris's back here, right? If we go to a TCU football game and you love TCU football, and you revel in TCU, you bleed purple, you know, prick me and I bleed purple, right? Because, you know, and, and I got horn frogs apparel all up, right? And, and you walk into that stadium and you have great thoughts of TCU football, okay? Now, I'm, I'm really offending some of you. I'm causing my brother to stumble. So it could be Aggie football, right? It could be Texas A&M University. Uh, and, and you bleed that, 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 Special College Station, Texas A&M, Maroon, the shirts that they're, you know, they're always wearing the shirts. You notice that? They, they come prepared here, okay? And you, you cut them and they bleed that color, right? When you walk into that stadium or you flip on the TV, if you have great thoughts of your team, when they're running the kickoff return in the end zone, you don't sit there and go, huh, I know I should be more excited about this. I'm just not real. I just don't really feel. You don't do that, do you? 
You're on your feet in your living room. You're yelling at the TV. You're cheering, even though they can't hear you. You're cheering in your living room, right? That's what you do at a TCU football game or an A&M football game or whatever, whatever you love. It doesn't have to be football. Ladies, you may say, I don't care a lick about football. But there's something you love and there's something you have a high view of. And your worship, your love, your excitement, your emotion, your passion, your time, your attention, your interest follows whatever that is that you love, right? So a growth in Christ problem. Uh, I need to be doing better in my walk with God problem is usually not a process problem. It's a perception of God problem. We will never rise higher than our image of God. And what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And think about it. If you're trying to talk to somebody about your faith, and they get to know you, and you're like, hey, this is the thing, right? Christianity is the thing, and this is about eternity, and this is great. And as they get to know you, they think, you know what? Um, They're actually pretty bored with their own God. Well, how's that going to go? Right? So, so this, this connects even to the sharing of our faith. Um, and, and again, when, when I, I don't know what you do, when you need a God adjustment, when, when you recognize that I am bored with God, I shouldn't be, but I am. I am more interested in football or Pinterest or Amazon or, you know, some Netflix series than I am about God. When, when you admit that, what do you do? And what I would suggest you do is what Psalm 119 tells us to do over and over and over, ad nauseum over and over and over. And that is to meditate on the truth of God, the word of God, in order to see the image of who God truly is. And that's what this study is all about. That's what the book of Isaiah is about, that we would see God in both his judgment and in his redemption, and we would walk away going, man, I want to get to know this God more. Because he's incredible. So what do you do? Where do you go? And I would suggest to you that you develop, and I'm just curious, when you're like that, where do you go in your Bible to meditate? Where do you go? James. Okay. About being humble, Yeah. That's right. Okay. So starting maybe confessing that my heart's proud instead of humble. Okay, I appreciate that. That's great. Because it is, right? If we're not, if we're bored with God, then yeah, there, there is some pride going on there, certainly. Where else do you like to go? Talk to me here. This is group. Philippians. Okay, what do you like in Philippians? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, good. And I may be found in Him, right? Having a not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but a righteousness that is based on faith. And He meditates on Christ, and then rejoice, 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 rejoice. Yeah, certainly. Okay. Where else do you like to go? Okay. That's right. Nothing under the sun has changed, right? Okay. 
That's good. So, so reading Ecclesiastes reminds me that uh, this has been going on for millennia, and I don't want to fall for it one more time. Okay, I like that. Good. This is good. Uh, Tony, where, where do you go? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Are you guys taking notes? We're helping each other out here, okay? Because we all need to learn from one another. What what fuels your worship? What revs up the RPMs of your spiritual inner man? That, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, Tara. John 14, 15, and 16. Okay, yes. Um, because it was right before he was going to crucify and leave mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. instructions on the last things that he wanted to tell them and the thoughts of the disciples on trying to process what their shepherd is trying to tell them and just the com- comfort and compassion mm-hmm. um, that Jesus yep. left with them. Okay. John 14, 15, and 16. Okay. Someone else. Where do you go when you're dry and when you need... Yes, Rob. Psalms chapter 1. Psalm 1. Okay. Just kind of lays it out, right? How blessed is this man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Stand it right and just... You got two choices, right? And and then the the man firmly planted by streams of water. Um, yes, good. Yes. Hebrews. Yeah. Because the God of Exodus, the God who is so holy that He laid out all these restrictions on how He was to be approached, and mm-hmm. people died if they didn't treat Him as holy. Mm-hmm. And yet in Hebrews we find we have a great High Priest. That's right. Who lived our life and sympathizes with our troubles and intercedes on our behalf. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yes, Hebrews is a great... That, that, that's a that's a Christ-exalting book, isn't it? Okay, yeah. Uh, Brian. I look at Psalm 51 and Psalm 103. And okay. have a lot of similarities, but they talk about the attributes of God. Uh-huh. Yeah. For me. Psalm 51, Psalm 103. That's right. Good. Good. See, th- this is good, guys, because you need to have a predetermined place that you're going to go when you're struggling with that small god syndrome that we talked about last time. You need to don't don't, don't go that's normal. That that's that's like going to your doctor and they take your vitals and they go something's wrong. Your blood pressure's off, right? Your your uh uh, glucose is off or, you know, whatever it is, right? You d- don't walk away from that. Do something, do something to improve your health and having verses like this and even hearing the variety, right? We've gone from Ecclesiastes to Hebrews to a Psalm to John, right? To that's, that's exactly, and it's not gonna be the same for everybody, but have somewhere in the Bible, have places that you've identified. And you know, some of you know this, I can go there and it does something to my soul that few other things will do. So have a list like that. Go to that. Rehearse, meditate, and don't get up until you are once again overwhelmed by your God. And uh, you young people, you need to be doing that, okay? And you know what else you can do? Make a playlist. Make a playlist of big God songs. Now, now you got to look because, you know, usually the, you know, the top ten of the, the Dove Awards, you guys are too young to even know what Dove Awards are, but anyway... Um, Right is usually not. It might be the the seven eleven songs. You know the seven words repeated eleven times, and you know they're about as deep as a birdbath kind of songs. Don't don't do those. But so, uh, find songs that proclaim 
the greatness of who God is in His character and in His works, the personal work of Jesus, to whatever music you like. The style of music is not important. Deep thoughts about God that stir your heart up toward Him, that's the point. Make a playlist like that. And when you're, when you're, when you're there, right, and, and you're, you're caught up in all the things that your friends are caught up in, and you're like, ah, oh, this church thing, ah, oh, my Bible thing, right, that's gonna happen. It does happen. And you go to that playlist and you listen and you don't get up until your heart is raised to great thoughts about God again. And old people, we can do that too, okay? Playlist, it just isn't for the young guys. We can do that too, okay? So with that in mind, Isaiah 40 is a big God text. It's one of the places I would encourage you to go if you haven't gone there before. I've gone here for years and uh, it, it it just does something. Even... Even when when, when uh, um, Carl was reading it, there's a momentum to this, isn't there? You start reading Isaiah 40, and it's like you know the the foot on the gas pedal just keeps going harder and harder to the floor, right? You're accelerating into great thoughts about God and who He is and and what He's done. So, uh, so let's come back to this uh, text. We started it last time, and here we go. I had a small panic attack because. Uh, all the work I did this week on the PowerPoint, I turned on my computer this morning, it was all gone. It was last week's. And uh, so, uh, thankfully, we're able to recover that. So, uh, hopefully, it will all behave itself here, okay? So, where are we at? We've, we've completed the first part of the book. We're now into the second part of the book that starts in Isaiah chapter 40. And remember how it ends, right? 39 ends with a... Oh, my. Microsoft PowerPoint has stopped working. I spoke too soon. Well, we might have to do it old school here. Okay. Stay. Good. All right. Um, so remember how this ends. Hezekiah, who, who was a, a godly king, who did a lot of what he uh, should have done in terms of walking with God and leading with people. He gets to the end of his life. He gets proud. He starts inviting uh, all the nations over to see uh, his gold and, and his stuff and ta- recount his great uh, the great battle that he had nothing to do with when God destroyed uh, Sennacherib and his army, the Assyrians. And... Um, and so Isaiah comes to him at the end of his life and says, uh, by the way, um, all the stuff you're just showing off in the temple, it's all going to be taken away to Babylon. And your sons are going to be taken away as slaves. And Hezekiah goes, well, at least things will be good in my life. The end. And we go, well, there goes that as our hope, right? Even, even the best of human hope is deficient to the hope that we really need and can only find in God himself. Okay, So that's why Isaiah 40 starts with, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Uh, This is the message of comfort. It's not a comfort in a human ruler or in a godly king even. It's comfort in God himself. Now, remember what's happened. Okay, On your notes, I put this on review. Isaiah didn't live to see the prophesied Babylonian captivity that he's going to talk about uh, or excuse me, that he already talked about in chapter 39. That's going to take place in three phases between 605 and 586 B.C. But the prophecies in 40 to 66 look forward to that time. So when you hear comfort, comfort, O my people, 
it's not just what Hezekiah says. Things have gotten worse. Because after Hezekiah, what's happened? The Babylonians have come in. They have taken Jerusalem. They have destroyed the temple. They have broken the wall down. They have carried off uh, uh, thousands of people back into Babylon, made them their slaves in captivity. And the people of God are wondering, is there hope? Is there, have, we, have we blown it and, and we are not going to recover? And God says to that generation, comfort, O oh, comfort my people, speak kindly to Jerusalem, right? She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What's going on there? What he's saying is that refers to the captivity. Three means that God has disciplined his people and now it is time for their departure, their recovery. They were coming back to the land. Verse 3, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. That tells us what? That looks forward to the time where the Messiah comes as the ultimate deliverer. And we remember that language being used of John the Baptist in the Gospels. We talked about the eternal nature of God's word providing hope. These verses that we we love so dearly, right? The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, Now think about this. Why is that important in this context? Why would he remind them that God's word stands forever in the day and time that they're in in the Babylonian captivity? Okay, and how do they know that? Okay, what's that? Yeah, right. That's right, and that's and that's what Isaiah is saying is even in the captivity, we know that's not going to be final, right? It is temporary. That God will be true to His word to bring His people back and to redeem them. And uh, that's where the the meditating. I can't tell you. I mean, I've had a week full of conversations. Of all sorts and varieties. Being a pastor is really interesting, actually. You get all sorts of things. And sometimes it's just being a dad or being a neighbor or, you know, being in Walmart at the right time. And, you know, it's, it's not just being a pastor. Um, it is amazing how many conversations, as I have them, and maybe you feel the same too, come down to this. Will I believe the promises of God or what seems to be true in my circumstances? That's it. Am I going to believe the promises of God or what feels true in my circumstances? And that's the temptation here, right? We're in the Babylonian captivity. God's given up on us. We've been here. Things aren't going well. And remember what? The word of our God stands forever. We can trust that what God said, keeping a remnant, bringing redemption, that that will happen. And then the whole rest of the book, or excuse me, the rest of the chapter is designed to remind us who the Lord is and what he does. So let's, let's get a running start. We'll review where we were last time and we'll pick it up, okay? What does he do? Verse 10 says he is the rewarder, right? He is one who brings, um, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Uh, we t- remember we talked about that? Remember the chapters that describe the judgment, the worldwide judgment of all the nations, including Israel, when everybody would bring an account to God? Uh, well, that, that's what this reference is. God is coming to reward those who have trusted in him and who are leaning on him even in the midst of uh, very difficult circumstances. He shepherds his people. One of you mentioned this last time. You've had, you've had elders and priests and kings 
and, and leaders in Israel that should have been caring for the people. And what are they doing? They're taking advantage of the poor. They're taking advantage of the widow. They're taking bribes. They're completely and utterly corrupt. Sounds like an election year, doesn't it? Right? Well, hey, not a whole lot has changed. Not a whole lot has changed. Um, and, and here, finally, we get a shepherd who will shepherd the people. Look at verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. His, in his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. And, and who are we talking about? Who's the ruler? Is it Hezekiah? <clears throat> right? No. Who is it? It's the Lord. Right? And we know, we know eventually who is, his uh, given name is the Lord Jesus, the coming Messiah, the servant. We'll read about him. Uh, throughout the rest of the book, and particularly in Isaiah 53. So he is the shepherd. Uh, and, and, and now think back. Think back to the time, we talked about this last time, of the judges. We want a king. We want a king. Why is that? Because everybody else has a king. And God says, but I'm your king. Remember that? You don't need a human king. I'm your king. And if I'm your king, why do you need a human king? We want a king. We Right? Okay, I'll give you a king, but it's not going to go well. How'd Saul do? Not so good. How'd David do? He started off a lot better than Saul. Crashed and burned. Lost all those sons, one of them pursuing his own life. Wrecked his reputation. How about Solomon? Wisest man that ever lived, right? He did not do well at all. Started off well. Did not end well. Okay, we got kings of Judah, right? Kings of Israel. Rehoboam, Jeroboam. They launch off, right? They mostly did bad. Mostly did bad. And now we have one of the good ones, Hezekiah. Well, how did he land the ship? Not so good. We want a king. But I'm your king. And what Isaiah is doing is it's saying... You wanted shepherds, well, how did that go? I'm your shepherd. You've wanted kings, well, how did that go? I'm your king. And come back to that. Come back to see that the Lord is sufficient for them in terms of leadership, in in terms of care. He's incomparable, the text tells us. He created the massive structures of the universe. Okay, so let's talk about this, okay? Uh, You guys liked my pictures last time, so I added some more here. Um. 3,000, or excuse me, 332,519,000 cubic miles of water. Mind-boggling. Now, you understand that when, when Isaiah was prophesying this, they didn't have anywhere near the metrics, the data, the technology. When they heard ocean, they just went, that's a lot, Right? And we're overwhelmed by it. What's neat is we think we're so smart because we actually have, you know, oceanographic technology and satellites and, and math equations and whatnot where we can estimate the actual volume of the waters. And, and we do all that and we go, wow, that's a lot. Right? I mean, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah. Even Palestine, it's not a whole lot. Okay, how about this? Um, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens by the span? We talked about that. The, the length of the universe 
And, and this is, uh, one of you used this term last time and I appreciated it, the term God's immensity. What's his immensity? What's that? Yes. So, so God's immensity is the infinite size of the sizeless God. That's what it is. You get that? Right? I, I saw her back there. Okay, my, our young theologian back there. She's tracking with me. It's the infinite size of the sizeless God. It's a word that we say that even though God does not have spatial dimensions, He is so overwhelming in who He is that thinking about it in terms of actual dimensions is one way that we picture him. And we need a word for that, because we can't just say big or great. So theologians came up with the word his immensity, right? Um, His immensity. Who has held the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has calculated, uh, marked up the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance? Okay, so we're going to do this with one mountain, okay? Mount Everest. How big is Mount Everest? Where do you want to start? What's that? Where are you starting with Mount Everest? What are the limits of it? Yes. Yeah, so you have to say how, how deep are we going to go? And that, that's right. Yeah, well, we're just we're isolating ourselves to that peak itself. Uh, we could take the whole mountain range. So there are people that have way too much time on their hands and actually calculate these things. So I... Uh, I, I don't like to do math just for fun. Some of you may like to do that. But uh, how about this? 357 trillion pounds, and that's not including the snow. That's one mountain. And God says, I've got a pair of scales that I can weigh the whole thing. So that's pretty amazing. Okay. <laughs> yes, we start going interplanetary uh, conversations. That's a whole nother. That's a whole nother perspective, isn't it? Okay. So, who is the Lord, and and what does He do? Idols are created and worthless. Right. Eighteen to twenty. We saw this last time. Who then will liken me? An idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. Uh, Jeremiah says, "You gotta, you gotta hammer him to the fence so he doesn't blow over in the wind." You, t- you chop down a tree, you make half of it into your idol that you say, this is our God, you control the heavens and the earth, you control my health and wealth and everything, and you throw the rest to run your kitchen oven. He runs the 93 billion light year size universe, 5.5 times 10 to the 23 miles, okay? Now, um, how many of you were not here last time? Okay. You guys that were here, do you mind if I show them the pictures again? Okay, and uh, we got we have more pictures. I want to run out of time here. Okay, so so how do we how do we quantify that? Okay, so those of you that weren't last time, this is what we did last time. So um, there's Earth, okay, and you're right there somewhere. You're you're a you're a speck of dust on the planet. I'm not here to make you feel better about yourself, but you're a speck of dust on the planet right there in North Texas, Hood County, seven six zero four nine. Right? Okay. Or eight. Or seven. We're here. This is 049 right here. Okay. Um, okay, so there's Earth. Where's Earth? Earth is one. You want to, let's hit the lights again because this gets. We start looking at the blackness of outer space and all of a sudden we can't see. There we go. You want to just kill them all? 
Let's kill them all. Don't go to sleep on me, okay? Oh, wow, look at that. Okay, so where are you? Where's Waldo? Okay, you're, you're right here. There's the Earth in what is called a solar system. We see those planets that have odd elliptical orbits there. Sometimes Neptune is further out, sometimes it's Pluto. There's you and the Earth, okay? So, so we're, we're a speck of dust on the Earth, and okay, there's the Earth, which looks like a speck of dust in the solar system. And that solar system, of course, is just one solar system in, there we are right there, in a solar system neighborhood. Yeah, it's a beautiful day in the solar system neighborhood. It's, right? Right? You're just one little solar system in a solar system neighborhood. And uh, you didn't know you lived in a solar system neighborhood, did you? And that solar system neighborhood is just one solar system neighborhood in a galaxy called the, you know it, the Milky Way. So here's your solar system neighborhood of which you are just one solar system in the neighborhood of which you are just one planet within the solar system of which you are just a blip on that planet. Are you with me? Okay. So galaxy. So so you're just one. Now the Milky Way galaxy, of course, is just one galaxy in a local galactic group. You thought that was from Star Wars. No, a local galactic group is actually a group of galaxies. Here's the Milky Way. Here's all your other nearby galaxies, okay? This is just a local one. This isn't all of them. This is just your galaxy neighborhood. And then from uh, the Milky Way galaxy right here, uh, this, again, just a local galactic group. That local galactic group is just one of many in what is called the Virgo supercluster. So here's your local galactic group of which you are just one the Milky Way of many galaxies of which you're just one solar system neighborhood with just one solar system with just one little planet called Earth right here. And you have this whole super cluster of regional galaxy neighborhoods. And that Virgo supercluster is just one supercluster of all of our local superclusters in our supercluster neighborhood. Are you feeling small yet? This is mind-boggling stuff, guys. We're just one little supercluster in a neighborhood of local superclusters. And that, all of these neighborhood of superclusters is just one little supercluster neighborhood in the ocean of the observable universe. You got it? So let's review. You're on Earth. You're right here. You're a blip on this dot, which of, of which you are a, well, one planet in the solar system, of which we are one solar system in a solar system neighborhood, of which many solar system neighborhoods make up one little blip in the Milky Way galaxy. Our Milky Way galaxy is in a local galactic group of galaxies, of which our local group of galaxies is just one neighborhood in the Virgo supercluster, and the Virgo supercluster is just one series of galaxies in a local neighborhood of superclusters, of which our neighborhood of superclusters is just one of many in the observable universe. But I'm still the center of the universe, Keith. I know, I know. <laughs> I know. I still, I still act like the world revolves around me, I know. And, and, and when you do that, you realize how stinking arrogant we are, right? I mean, is that just not true? Okay. And yet... And yet, we, we can turn the lights back on. Um, 
God knows you by name. God knows the hairs on your head. He knows every bird that, you know, hits your window and dies. Right? In, in all of that, he said, mine. 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 And the God who sits over all that says, there are some creatures on here that I made for my glory that rebelled against me. And at the cost of my son, I'm going to send him on a rescue mission. He's going to become a part of this universe while not ceasing to be God. He's going to condescend and put him in the space-time continuum, into the galaxy, on the planet, take on a human nature so that he can save you and me. So that he can bring us back from our rebellion. Now, if that doesn't do something to your soul, um, you need to spend a lot more time thinking on these things. Because it's true. Regine is absolutely right. You know, we don't think about this and, and we live under the illusion that I'm the most important thing in my life. I mean, we are just, I mean, So we are we are more important than we think because God mm-hmm. thinks we're important. Well and that, and that's and that's the thing is we are valuable just not in the way we think we are. See, we tend to think I'm the most important thing, my preference, my way, everybody else should defer, right? It's me, myself, and I, and, and that is a rebellious, um, marred, distorted perspective. The fact that God made creatures on this one little planet in all of this who would image him and live for his glory and relationship with him is astronomically crazy. Pun intended. Right? And to think there is a value that we have, but it's a value that is derived from our reflection of God who made us, right? It's not a value apart from that, which is how we tend to live, right? It's me, myself, and I as myself being autonomous, not as myself being dependent on my creator. So yeah, there there is a right way to look at that and say, man, why does God care about me? People who don't believe in creation use this as an argument to make us insignificant. They say, oh, you're nothing, Mm -hmm. Did you hear what he just said? Because one of the questions people have is, well, if, if this is the only planet of consequence in terms of creatures made in his image, why did he go through all the trouble? You think he's God, right? He doesn't grow weary and tired. I mean, he just snaps his fingers and he builds all that, right? But, but why? And what Dave said, did you hear what he said? It could be, and this is what scripture says. When the scripture points to the rest of the universe, it's a object lesson 
to teach us about the nature and character of God. That's, that's often what it is. So he went to all the trouble because how do you quantify the unquantifiable? You know, how do you teach the wisdom of whose wisdom is without bounds? And how do you do that? Well, you create something like this that's so overwhelming and then say, but I'm bigger than that. Right. I did all that. Um, so that might be it. Lee Slaughter. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You got right. Yeah, and and that that's true. You, you guys that geek out on this stuff, there are a thousand details here that just extend our breathlessness at this as we as we nerd out in some of those details, like what Lee just said. Right. Um, it is. It's it's overwhelming. Okay. Now now check this out. So if we go back here, so there we are. There's your metrics. You can count the zeros. They're all there. I double-checked. What's that? Well, I know. I did scientific notation just for you, Lee, in the last slide. So this is for normal people, you know. But, yeah, commas would be good. So, Okay. All right. So how do you... How do you think that when God said, I'm going to make the universe, I hold out my hand and measure it. 5.5 times 10 to the 23 miles from thumb to pinky. Right? I just... Yeah, yeah. If if that doesn't prove to you that God's real, you are living in denial. Actually, that's what Romans one says, right? You're living in denial. Yeah. Okay. All right. Back to the slides. Okay. Let's. So he's incomparable. Why idols are created and worthless? He runs the ninety-three billion light-year-sized universe. He invalidates and annihilates rulers. Look at verse twenty-three. Pick it up here. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. You've got Sennacherib, well, we saw him. You've got Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king. And uh, do you remember what happens? Well, uh, give, me a, give me the flyover of his, of his career. What happens to him eventually? Yeah, Sennacherib is an Assyrian king who's killed by his sons. We saw that. Uh, back in previous chapters of Isaiah. Okay. Ba- uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian king. You'll remember him as the king in power when Daniel, the book of Daniel, begins. Right? And God humbles him to what point? Eating grass, yeah. Remember? Is this not Babylon that I've made? Right? The same guy that said, and what God is there that can stop me from throwing these three teenagers into the fiery furnace? Right? And God humbles the proud, doesn't he? Um, it's either his son, probably his grandson, comes to power later on. What's his name? Belshazzar. Belshazzar. What's he doing? Hey, let's have a party. Let's take all of the gold and silver utensils that we stole from the temple in Jerusalem when dad had that great, you know, shock and awe thing, right? Yeah. 
That's right. Let's, let's drink to our gods that delivered us. And you want to talk about, you know what, what hand appeared on the wall? That same hand. Right? Fingers. And, um, the Bible says that, uh, Mr. Belshazzar was so overwhelmed, he had a bathroom accident. Right there. That's what it says. It says it nicely, but that's what it says. Because he was so overwhelmed. And what happened after that? He died that night, didn't he? Okay. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar did have an increasing understanding and appreciation. He did. In the last that we hear of Nebuchadnezzar, he was actually praising That's right. There's a, my, my view is that he, he probably became a believer at that point. So I agree with you. God's grace toward Nebuchadnezzar is, is really the theme of Daniel there. I agree with you. But you think about this, even as a, as a means of grace toward his conversion, he laid that guy low, didn't he? And humbled him. And Belshazzar. And then uh, Persian kings after. Uh, Roman kings, Greek kings. Alexander the Great's going to come later on. Um, See, all of these, right? He invalidates and annihilates rulers. And, and God is saying through Isaiah to the people, don't worry, right? He's coming. And he will do that. He's incomparable that he names, look at this, and sustains all 100 billion stars. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these. Um, stars is implied by the context, but that's clearly what the reference is. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. And because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. God makes the stars. He sustains the stars. He runs the stars. What is a star, by the way? You can't answer. What's a star? It's a sun, okay? And what is that? A big ball of burning gas. A big ball of burning gas. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas. That's all you got to remember, right? Um, nuclear reactions that create light and heat. And that's what we see, right? How many of those are there? <laughs> a lot. Okay, and, and what does it say here? He created them. He leads them. Do stars move? Yes. Sure they do. How do you keep track? Have you ever seen, you ever seen an air traffic controller? Um, you ever seen a, like, a, like, a, uh, a, like a documentary on this? And they've got a scope, right? They've got a screen, and they've got airplanes flying all over the place. It's like Chicago or DFW or somewhere, you know, really, JFK, really, airplanes all over this, and they got altitudes and speeds and direction vectors, and, and, right, and, and someone's there going, let's make sure they don't hit each other, right? And, you know, they're calling out, and, they, and usually in the big airports, they got a team of guys doing this. They divide up the airspace, and they got guys on the west side and the north side and the south side and east side, and they're calling this out, right? And we think, I get tired just watching that for a few minutes. I talked to an air traffic controller. We were at an air show a little while ago. I said, how do you do that and not go home just exhausted? And so I do go home exhausted. Oh, okay. So God is the divine air traffic controller of the cosmos. How's that? 
all these stars, all these planets, all these comets, and and he's not only tracking them, he's causing their path. He's sustaining them. Those uh, nuclear reactions within the star that create light and heat and and right. That's that's Jesus' home experiment kit. That he's he's making all that happen for all of these stars. And they all have a name. Right? And, and you know, I struggle with my three kids to go, uh, Eric, eight, oh, oh, Alan, that's right, right? You know, you did that, right? You know, it's like you're trying to find the right name, right? And I see some nods back there. And, and he just knows all the names of the stars. They do. They do. Yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole section in Job uh, in Elihu about weather and stars and yeah, you get a lot of cosmology there. All right, let's 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 land the plane here, guys, okay? He is a comparable in that, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Okay, so all that, right? Stars, planets, cosmos, run this, run that, make this right, rulers crushed, idols thwarted. And you get to all that, all right? And you catch your breath. And God says, now what was it you're worried about? You're worried that I've forgotten about you in the Babylonian captivity? You're worried that I forget about you in your need? That I don't see your suffering? I don't see your affliction? See, that's why we need this, guys, because if we don't spend the time doing what Isaiah just unfolded for us, we go, oh no, God forgot me. Oh no, God can't help me. God doesn't care. He doesn't love me. He's, he's, he's hurting me. He's allowing these things to happen. And, 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 and I, right? And you, you read this and you meditate it and you go, why am I worried? Why am I arguing with the logic of the one who did all this? Because he not only does all this, what does he do? He loves you and he loves me. And he knows what he's doing. And that's what, so all that, why do you say then my way is hidden? God doesn't see, right? Verse 28. Do you not know? That's what you need to tell yourself. When you're struggling, grab yourself by the collar and say, don't you know this? Have you not looked up on a clear night lately? Have you not watched Discovery Channel lately? Have you not heard the everlasting God, Yahweh, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? You can imagine, they're enslaved in Babylon. They think they're forgotten, they're tired, they're weary, they're lost. The creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. Tired. His understanding is inscrutable. It can't be measured. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might. He increases in power. And then these words, though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous, young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk up and not become weary. See, that's the point, guys. The, the point of the cosmology lesson, 
the point of the meditation on what happens to rulers, what happens to idols. The point of all of this is that in your day of trouble, you don't turn away from God, but you will be renewed in your spirit and turn toward him for help. That you'll turn to him and I'm going to, I'm going to call this waiting in hope. He will not fail those who wait in hope. Uh, Carl's version said trust, and that's absolutely right. It's a, it's a robust trust in God, an active waiting on God that says, I'm not going to give up. I know he knows about my need. I know he's going to provide for me. And I can relax. I mean, is that, is that something we just all need to do today? Do we just need to take whatever is on our mind, what's heavy on our hearts, think about all this and say, I can just relax because my heavenly father has it. And that's the point. He will not fail those who wait in hope. Every single one of you have something today that you're trusting God for, you're needing to lean on him for, that's heavy on your heart, that... And that's the question. You know, who are you going to lean on? Who are you going to trust in? And um, Isaiah has unfolded, like most other chapters don't, an amazing view of who God is and what he does and that he cares and he's faithful and we can trust him. And uh, so now, what are, how are we going to respond, right? Well, let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you again for this incredible picture of who you are. Uh, whatever our need... Um, would you help us to trust you, to wait hopefully for you? Uh, if we're angry with you, would you help us to repent and, and come to you and, and pray that you would help us to see the wisdom of what you're doing in our life? If we're suffering, would you help us to come to you and ask for your encouragement and, and help to, to heal our hearts in whatever way it needs. If we're anxious, Lord, will you remind us of your promises and your character and that you are worthy of our trust. If we're fearful of, of some future happening that we don't want to happen, will you calm our hearts? That you name the stars and you run them in their courses and that you care about us and, and whatever that thing is that we're dreading, we can trust that your kind, fatherly ways and your perfect plan will, will not put us through something that is not uh, a gracious gift of your kindness to us. Lord, if we're caught up in the world and we're bored with you, will you overwhelm us with the reality of who you are and might these things sober us to turn away from things that we can see and touch in the world to, to look up and see the creation and stand in awe, not just of the creation, but of the Creator. Um, Lord, whatever we need, will you meet us and overwhelm us with your grace and your immensity and your faithfulness that we might trust you with whatever our need is. In Jesus' name, amen.